Good afternoon. Is this thing okay? All right. Good to see you this afternoon. I want to talk with you about uh, one of Jesus' parables, one of my favorite parables. I enjoy uh, the parables in general. Uh, we know that our Lord was uh, very fond of using parables as a teaching mechanism. Sometimes we refer to things in the Bible as stories. This is actually a story. When we read about the historical things that happen in the Bible, I don't like to call those stories because I want to differentiate those things from things like this. Jesus told a story. In Luke chapter 15 and verse number 1, the Bible tells us that uh, some publicans and sinners had gathered to listen to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And then in verse number 2, the Bible tells us that along with those publicans and sinners, some scribes and Pharisees had come. And having that group of people assembled before him, Jesus gave a series of parables in Luke chapter 15. You remember he spoke about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then what we call the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Well, in Luke chapter 16, this is a continuation of him addressing that same audience in chapter 15. And in verse number 1, the Bible tells us that in addition to the publicans and the sinners, in addition to the scribes and the Pharisees, his disciples were there. And so it says, he said also unto the disciples. I call this parable the, a shrewd steward of worldly wealth. Uh, if you look in some commentaries and so forth, they may call this the parable of the unjust steward, or they may call it the parable of the shrewd manager. I call it the parable of the unjust steward or the shrewd steward of worldly wealth. Jesus spoke in parables. Why did he do that? He tried to make it easy for people to understand. In a parable, one cast a story down. One cast a story down alongside a spiritual application. And if you can understand the story, then you can better understand the spiritual application. This is one of the most unique parables that Jesus gives because the quote-unquote hero in the story is a despicable human being. Let's take a look at the parable itself first. The Bible says in verse number one, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. Think with me for a second about this man's position. He was a steward. In the Greek, it's a compound word, which means an overseer or manager of someone else's estate. This was a person who had been given the privilege and responsibility of managing someone else's goods and affairs. Now, his job was to do that for the owner's benefit. But what a privileged position he was in because he was the steward to a rich man. And so he had access to all of this rich man's goods. He had an opportunity to wield this rich man's goods for the rich man's benefit. But certainly there would be some collateral benefit for him. You know, he could have been a steward for somebody who wasn't as well off as the man that he worked for. But this man was rich. He was in a good position. The Bible says he was a steward to a, a rich man. But there was a problem that develops quite early in Jesus' account here. Listen to what he says. The same was accused unto him that he was wasting his goods. Now that's a real difficulty when you're managing somebody else's property to waste their goods. You know, the only indictment that would have been more severe than waste would have been theft. 
This man has given, his, has given his resources into your hand, expecting you to manage them to bring him as much return as is possible, and you have wasted his goods. Everybody knows this person is a steward. Everybody knows that he works for someone else. And everyone can see that he's not doing what ought to be done, and so he, they give a report to the, to the true owner. And so he calls him in verse number two and says to him, what is this that I hear of you? Render the account of your stewardship for you can no longer be steward. This is what we sometimes call the day of reckoning. You know, when you work for somebody else, when you're managing somebody else's goods, at some point they want to report about how things are going. They, they expect to get some kind of accounting about what you have been doing. This is a day of reckoning. Maybe it comes sooner than he had anticipated because the, the owner comes back to him and says, what am I hearing? You know, I've trusted you with all of my goods. My expectation was that you would do what I wanted done. And, and it seems that you've been wasteful. You've been so wasteful, in fact, that others are coming to me and telling me that you're not doing a good job. I would like an accounting. The day of reckoning always comes. And then he tells them the bottom line. You can no longer be my steward. See, he's got a problem. He's in a really good position, but he has squandered the opportunity. He's in a really good position, but he has pilfered from this man if, if by waste of nothing else. He has stolen from his master. And so he says, you can't be my steward anymore. I'll find someone else who will do the job. Now, the man uh, doesn't have very good prospects. I mean, this is not good news. I don't know if any of you have had the privilege of, uh, you know, being fired from a job. You know, you, you didn't expect it, and you go in there, and they say, listen, we just don't need your services anymore. We're downsizing or whatever that is. And you think to yourself, boy, I've got a wife. I've got a couple kids at home. I'm not sure how we're going to take care of all of that. There can, there can be some uncertainty that develops. This man thinks immediately about his prospects, and the prospects are not too good. Look what he says. What shall I do? That's an air of desperation. What shall I do seeing that my Lord takes away the stewardship from me? Listen to this. I have not strength to dig, to beg, I am ashamed. I don't know. Maybe the guy had a bad back. I don't know. But I tend to think the problem was that he was slothful and lazy. I tend to think that was the problem here. He says, uh, boy, I'm just not able to dig. There are some things that I don't find very commendable about him, but this uh, self-awareness that he has I think is pretty helpful. I'm not cut out to bend my back and work hard. I'm, well, I tell you, this was a great gig I had here managing this other guy's stuff. He had worked for it. He had amassed it. All I had to do was sort of steward over it, and now I think I'm going to have to go out and bend my back and do some real labor, and I'm not cut out for that. Then he says, and to beg I am ashamed. You know, I've got my pride. I guess it'd be better for me to starve and people think I'm doing all right than it would be for me to tell people that I could use some help. I'm too proud for that. And so his prospects don't look very good. What would you do if you were in this position? I mean, you know that uh, the position you're in is, is not going to be your position. You know that. You think to yourself, boy, I just got to figure out what else I'm going to do, but... Uh, 
I don't have anything that's really great that comes to my mind right off the top of my head here. I tell you, if you had any common sense at all, what you'd do, you'd sit down and make a plan. That's what this guy does. In verse number 4, he says, I am resolved what to do. I figured it out that when I am put out of the stewardship, I know I can't stay here. They may receive me into their houses. I I can't stay here. I've got to go somewhere else. And so I need to figure out what I can do to get from where I am to where I will have to go after I leave this place. He says, I have a plan. Listen to his plan. In verse 5, calling to him each one of his Lord's debtors, he says to the first, how much do you owe my Lord? See, he's been given his 30 days notice, but he's still on the payroll. So he's still in a position where he can manage his master's affairs for some period of time. Maybe, maybe the master sends him a telegram or whatever the equivalent would have been. I'm sure it wasn't a text message back then. But whatever the equivalent would have been, maybe he sends him a message and says, you know what, I'm coming to town and I want to meet with you and I want an accounting of everything that has been done because I'm dissatisfied with the reports that I've received and I'm going to have to replace you. So he's got some period of time here and this is how he decides to use it. He calls those who owe his master money. Now listen, it had been his job to manage his master's affairs so he knows who owes his master money and he should know how much they owe. But he says to the first, how much do you owe my Lord? In verse 6, he says, the one who owes a hundred measures of oil. Well, you remember we we transacted some business and I got a hundred measures of oil and so I still owe for the 100 measures. And the steward says to him, take your bond and sit down quickly and write 50. I tell you what we'll do. We will settle your tab with my master for 50 cents on the dollar. Well, why would you do that, sir? I mean, didn't your master, uh, didn't your master surrender 100 measures of oil? Isn't he to be paid for 100 measures of oil? Why would you settle with this person for 50 measures of oil? That's not for your master's benefit because your master is owed for 100. He calls the next person and he says to him, how much do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. And he says to him, take your bond and write four score. How much do you owe my master? Well, I received a hundred measures of wheat and I haven't paid for it yet. I tell you what we're going to do. I tell you what we're going to do. I will settle your tab with my master for 80 cents on the dollar. Now, who is this benefiting? It's not for his master's benefit. See, his master is owed for 100 but he's doing something to curry favor with the ones who owe his master. You mean to tell me you'll give me a break 50 cents on the dollar? I think I like this guy. 80 cents on the dollar, this guy did a favor for me. I think I will remember this guy. Now look at what happens here. In verse number 8, the Bible says, His Lord commended the unrighteous steward... The King James Version, I know, says the unjust steward because he had done wisely. And I appreciate the reading from the ESV because I believe it says he had done shrewdly. Well, isn't that antithetical? That's not what you'd be looking for, isn't it? I mean, that, 
This man has cheated his master. He has cheated his master out of honest service for some period of time, and then he has settled his master's debts in such a way that his master will not receive the full recompense for his goods. But the master looks at this man and commends him as having done shrewdly or wisely. Shrewd. It means cunning. It means that a person is steely or icy cold in doing business. They're going to make the right move to maximize profit in the deal. They see the angles and they maximize the angles to make sure that they come out on top. And so the master commends this man as being shrewd. Now I want you to notice something. This man is lazy. He is uh, dishonest. He's been involved in skullduggery. He has uh, cheated his master by rushing to cut these deals with the master's debtor. So why is he being commended? Now notice, notice now. Jesus calls him unrighteous. Did you see that? Jesus calls him unjust. Jesus is not saying you ought to conduct business like this man has conducted business. Jesus is not saying let this be your model for how you go about conducting other people's business. No, ma'am, no, sir. Jesus says he's unrighteous. Jesus says he's unjust. But his earthly master, he said, uh, well, I tell you what, that guy sure was shrewd. He sure was cunning. He was, he was wise. Wise in what way? Wise how so? You will see here in verse number 8, Jesus makes this comment after noting the unexpected praise that the steward received from his master. Look at the comment that Jesus makes. For the sons of this world are for their own generation wiser than the sons of light. Uh, people who are carnal-minded, people who are worldly, people who are involved in cutthroat business, you know, this was the equivalent of cutthroat business back in that day. He says there is a respect in which they have more good sense than the sons of light. Now, you and I are the sons of light. He's saying that an unjust man, an unrighteous man, in some ways has better sense than the people who are supposed to be my disciples. In what way? Well, if you look at the next verse, Jesus explains in verse number 9, he says, I say unto you, make to yourselves friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it shall fail, they may receive you into the eternal tabernacles. Jesus has a lot to say about money. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about money. Jesus has a lot to say about money. This is different than most of what he has to say, though. Most of the time, he would tell you that you've got to be careful about, about how you handle money. You've got to be careful about how you treat money. We know Paul said, listen, the love of money is the, is the root of all kinds of evil. You've got to make sure that you keep your perspective in the proper place when it comes to material goods. 
But Jesus says here what you ought to be doing, what you ought to be doing is leveraging your worldly wealth to secure a heavenly and eternal habitation and home. When they fail, when they fail, See, your worldly wealth, it doesn't matter how much it is, it's going to fail. There's going to come a time, even if it's when you're taking your last breath, when your worldly wealth will not be of much help to you. He says what you should be doing then is leveraging your material goods. You should be leveraging your worldly wealth. Listen to what he says here. Make friends, he says, by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. You should use what you have in this life to make friends for the next life. Because he says what you want to do is make friends with someone who can receive you into eternal habitations. The deal with this steward was he could not stay where he was, and he knew that. He was wise because he immediately begun, began to make plans for his next habitation. And that's what Jesus says uh, the sons of light ought to be doing. You can't stay here. Listen, I, I hope you like Alabama. I know some of you guys love Alabama. I'm not from here. I, I think it's fine, you know, but I can live anywhere. But you won't always be able to stay in Alabama. You like Montgomery? You were born here? Well, that's great. You won't be here forever. You could have built the house you live in with your own two hands. I'm telling you something. You're going to have to leave. So you should be making plans for where you go next. Sometimes I, see, I taught an employment law class this quarter, you know, and it's interesting. One of the things we talked about is the responsibilities that an employee owes to an employer. And one of the things that you owe to your employer is a duty of loyalty. You should be pursuing your employer's best interest while your employer is paying you for your time. But there are all these cases where people would be working for one employer and then trying to curry favor and set up things with the next employer. Now, the way they go about it is unscrupulous. The way they go about it is unrighteousness, but that doesn't mean they don't have a good idea. You should be trying to prepare yourself for the next place. There is a way, by the way, there is a way to set yourself up for your next employment without breaking the law. Look at verse number 10. Jesus says, He that is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and he that is unrighteous in a very little is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? He says you should be using worldly wealth, you should be using material goods to leverage access to true riches. You know why people sometimes have a hard time in handling money the way God wants it handled? Because they think that what they have in their hands or what they have in their bank accounts is true riches, and it's not. Jesus says, listen, this is a little he doesn't say it's a little. He says it's a very little. 
Whatever you can amass in this life, whatever you can keep in a shed somewhere, whatever you can put in a vault somewhere, whatever you can put in a bank somewhere, it is a very little. And if we don't know how to handle a very little, why would God trust us with true riches? There is a such thing as true riches, and you don't have it here. Can't have it here. And so he says, uh, what you should do is leverage worldly wealth to gain access to true riches. We stand to inherit some tremendous blessings in Christ. We stand to inherit true riches. But this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate our faithfulness as stewards of God. And if we can't handle a little, why would God give us true riches? That's the question he's asking. And listen, you know the answer. If you give somebody a couple of nickels and dimes and they don't know how to handle that, why would you give them more than that? I mean, they've demonstrated that they're unable. Why would you do that? You wouldn't. And Jesus is saying, uh, well, God, is, God wouldn't either. If you haven't been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? And the implication is God wouldn't. Notice the third thing he says here. He says in verse number 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The servant in this uh, parable for a period of time, was ostensibly serving two masters. He, he was still in the employ of the owner, but he was actually serving the interests of the debtors to the owner. Now, in doing that, he preferred one over the other. It has to be that way. He advantaged one while disadvantaging the other. It has to be that way. I know a lot of people sometimes think, they truly believe, they truly believe they can serve two masters. And people try. And they knock themselves out trying. And if I'm listening to the Lord, they can only fail miserably because it can't be done. I didn't say people don't try. I didn't say none of us ever tried. I said Jesus said it cannot be done. So a person has to choose. And so he says you should leverage your worldly wealth to serve the right God. You can make a God out of anything. A tree falls down in your backyard, you can go out there with your little knife and whittle something to serve. You get involved in academia and you start pursuing degrees, you know, you can make that your God and you can decide that your life is going to be dedicated to serving that. A whole lot of people have trouble serving money. A whole lot of people have that trouble. That is their God. How do you know that? Because they arrange their lives around securing more money. If you serve God, then everything else has to take a back seat to God. Everything else has to take a back seat to God. But, but if you serve money, you know what? God will have to take a back seat while you pursue your money. A lot of people, a lot of people 
serve unrighteous mammon. Jesus says you can't do that and serve God. You cannot do it. You have to decide. You have to decide which is more important. And it's not what you say. It's the one you serve. Which is more important, God or money? You should leverage your material wealth to secure a better home than any home you could ever have here because you can't stay here. You should leverage your material wealth so that you can have access to true riches because it doesn't matter how much money you have in this life, these are not true riches. You should leverage the money that you have, the material things that you have access to, to serve the right God, the God of heaven, the most high. It's interesting, the, uh, I told you the Pharisees were in the audience. Uh, we learned that in Luke 15, uh, in verse 2. But look, it says in verse 14 that they heard this too. Now, they, they were not pleased with what Jesus had to say about lost lost things because he was basically indicting them for not uh, for, for not respecting his ministry to come and seek to save the, uh, the lost sheep of Israel and so forth. But look what he says in verse 14. The Pharisees, this is Luke speaking, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they scoffed at him. You know, somebody whose God is money, they... This is not what they might want to hear. You know, the Pharisees didn't like this because they loved money. I mean, they loved rubbing nickels and dimes together. And so when Jesus said, you have a problem because you're not using those nickels and dimes properly, you're not leveraging them in the way that a wise person would. You've got to make a decision, and you've made the wrong decision thus far by putting your love of money over your love of God. They didn't want to hear that. You know, sometimes it's hard to hear things. People tell you, you know, you're not doing something right. Sometimes that's, that's not easy to hear. These guys didn't want to hear it. There is another way to take that. There is another way to receive what Jesus said here. Instead of scoffing at the one who knows what he's talking about, it could make some sense to say, Lord, is it I? Maybe I should be introspective here. Maybe I should, maybe I should take a good long look and make sure that, that I'm not falling short, that I'm, that I'm not mishandling what God has given me, that I'm actually leveraging worldly things for eternal rewards. Maybe that'd be a better way to handle it. The, public, the publicans just kind of, I mean, the Pharisees just kind of blew this off. I tell you, they'd have been much better off if they, if they sat with it, if they lived with it if they let Jesus' words smack them about in the face, if they went home and wrestled with what Jesus said and let Jesus win, they'd have been better off. There are a lot of ways to think about money and giving. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not one of these guys who will tell somebody, you know, the Bible says uh, uh, you've got to give this kind of percentage. I, I, don't believe there's, I don't believe I'm able to do that, not and be faithful to the text. What I tell people, listen, is uh, I don't find any godly person ever giving 
God less than 10%. I just don't find it. And so I believe scripturally 10% is a baseline, but that's all it is, is a floor. It's a baseline. What determines how you give? Well, I think there's at least two things. One of them is how much you love the Lord. The Bible, Paul is writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, and he says, this is an opportunity for you to prove the sincerity of your love, how you give. It's, a, it's an opportunity to show how you love, and that's the first thing. This is the second. This is the second. It's an opportunity to leverage. See, I'm a guy who believes in investing wisely. I just believe if the Lord gives me a nickel or a dime, I'm responsible how I handle it, and the wise thing to do would be to use that so that he gets some return on it. I just, I just think that's what he intends, and I've got some biblical basis for that. But listen, if you use the money to get the greatest return, well, that just makes good sense. And when we give to the Lord, and that's what it is, you know, when you take up a collection around here, we do that every week, that, that's not for the elders. Y'all know that. That's, that's not for people in need. Y'all know that. It's for the Lord. It's his money. And when you leverage it like that, well, that just makes good sense to me. So I consider that kind of a self-preservation uh, thing here. I mean, the greatest return I can get from the Lord's money is giving the Lord's money back to him. That's just good sense to me. I thought it might be helpful to think about this because uh, it's always good. Every week, I mean, we have an opportunity to, to, to use the money that God has given us in a way that's going to demonstrate our love to him and also uh, leverage us into an eternal home and true riches and and serving the right God but I also thought with next week being a, a unique opportunity you see with next week being a unique opportunity for us to maybe do something more than we uh, budget to do on a weekly basis. Maybe next week is a unique opportunity for us to say there are people who are doing the Lord's work in places that we're not going to go or, or in ways that we're not going to do, and we can use the Lord's money to support those great works knowing that that will abound to our account in heaven anyway. It'll bless the doers, and it will bless the givers too. It's a unique opportunity. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. Isn't that right? And the Lord, of course, is going to reckon with us at some point. There's going to be an accounting for how we have used the material resources he has given into our hands. There is no better way to use the resources he gives us than to support the work of the church Jesus died to establish. There is no better investment. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for your sins and for mine. He died to purchase the church which we are a part of, and he expects us to cooperate with him in the work of the church. And there are many, many ways 
we should be cooperating with him in the work of the church many ways every day but don't forget the opportunities to leverage your material goods to benefit his kingdom and to lay up treasure in heaven Jesus Christ died for your sins and mine he did that so that we could be with him in heaven if you believe that he is the Son of God, you repent of your sins, you make changes to come into conformity with his will. You confess him with your mouth because you believe in your heart that he is who he says he is. And you submit to baptism because that's what he requires. That's what he requires. And so you submit to baptism because you want the promise of salvation that he has given to those who are baptized and then you live a life that's faithful unto death listen faithful in every way faithful in how you walk faithful in how you talk faithful in how you dress faithful in how you think faithful in how you treat other people and faithful in how you handle your material resources faithful in every way if we can help you tonight would you let us know how we can as we stand and sing this song of invitation